Good morning, everyone, and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Ben, and it is great to be with you here this morning. We are going to start off by reading a poem called Caged Bird by Maya Angelou. A free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wing in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze and the trade wind soft through the sighing trees and the fat worms waiting on a dawn bright lawn and he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams. His shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied so he opens his, his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still and his tune is heard on the distant hill for the caged bird sings of freedom. I don't know about you, but every time I read that part, the caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still, it resonates with me. There's something unknown that I long for and I desire, and I fearfully cry out and pray for it, and I sing about it, and it wells up from within me. And Maya Angelou writes this poem um, in the 70s, and she was actually referencing uh, the oppression she, that her people as a person of color had been facing in America compared to the freedom that whites were having. And so, although I can't relate to that part of the poem, I can certainly relate to that idea of singing about something unknown but longed for still. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Just as a reminder, you can join us on YouTube, on Facebook, on Vimeo, but really the best way to connect is, on, is at onelifeseattle.org slash live. And the reason that's the best is that um, uh, there you can, there's a live chat so you can engage with other people. There's a live prayer app, so if you need prayer, there's people there that will join you in prayer. There's a place to take notes, and there's a Bible app to follow along with the message. So lately we've been going through the book of Galatians. I think this is week seven in our series. And uh, we've been looking at the book of Galatians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was an early church leader, and he wrote this letter uh, to a gathering of Jesus followers in southern Galatia. Now, Paul is an interesting character. Uh, Paul uh, was a very zealous Pharisee, uh, a Jew, and in fact, he persecuted the Christians pretty intensely, and uh, one of the early Christian leaders, Stephen, was stoned to death, and Paul presided over that stoning. And then Paul went out to find more Christians to persecute and stone to death when all of a sudden Jesus intervened in his life and completely changed him and Paul became just as zealous for telling people the good news of Jesus. And the church in Galatia was comprised of both Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people, and Jewish people. And they were all gathered around the story of Jesus and that's what united them. But unfortunately, there were some people that Paul calls the Judaizers who were telling the Gentile Christians specifically, that, hey, if you want to be part of this new covenant community, this new family of God, you've got to do a few things. And one of them is following the Torah, which are like the first five books of the Old Testament. And specifically, the men need to get circumcised. That's how you show that you're part of our new family of God. But Paul just vehemently disagreed with that. 
He really disagreed with it. He said that instead of being circumcised, our sign of being a part of the family of God is our faith in Jesus. And it's the faith in Jesus that unites us and bring us, brings us into one family. And last week, Greg talked about Galatians chapter 3 um, and the second half of Galatians chapter 3. And he talked about how we all bring our unique differences, but we are united around Jesus and we're equal in Jesus no matter our race, our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status, or our gender. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So after that passage is Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, which is what we are going to be focusing on today. So let's read it. It's Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now, you know, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you know us. Thank you that you have freed us. You have adopted us. And thank you that we can experience deep, intimate relationship with you. I pray you'd speak to us today, that you'd encourage us, that you'd convict us, um, and that we would just know that we are cherished and adored by the creator of the universe. In your name we pray. Amen. So a couple things to talk about before we do more of a deep dive into the passage. First, you might have been seeing that Paul keeps on saying we're sons of God. And some of you might be thinking, well, does that apply to me? I'm a woman. How, well, how does this work? Well, <laughs> Paul's using language and, um, from the first century, and he's situated in a first century context. And in that culture, the sons were the ones that inherited the wealth, inherited the legacy, and represented the father and the family in all things. But Paul is not only talking to the men in the audience, though. He's talking to both men and women, which he expi explicitly says in the chapter before, where he says that in Christ we are one, and there's neither male nor female but we're united in Christ. So Paul's talking to everyone. He's just using first century language. Second, in order to understand um, Paul in this passage, we have to understand the Exodus background. You see, we all live in different stories and in different narratives, and Paul, along with all of his first century Jewish uh, family members and friends and people who believe the same as him, they were all steeped in the story of the Old Testament. So we're going to go through that briefly, then we're going to focus more on the Exodus. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, God created the sun, the moon, the stars, he created the plants and the animals, then at the pinnacle of creation, he created mankind. And it says that he created male and female in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. 
And they were created to represent God on earth, to spread his love and his goodness, to tend to the earth and to cultivate goodness and beauty wherever they are. But unfortunately, humans were like, uh, you know what, we want to do our own thing and we want to define what's good and what is evil for ourselves, which you immediately see has disastrous consequences. One brother decides that, you know what, I think it would be a good thing to kill my brother and kills him. This guy named Lamech decides it would be a good thing to brag about killing someone for the smallest slight. Then he also married multiple women. So right from the beginning, we see the results of human beings deciding what is good and what is evil. We see violence, we see patriarchy, and it's just not looking good. But thankfully, in the midst of it, God promises that there will be this uh, human who will come from the line of Eve, and he will defeat the powers of evil, and he will save his people. And so that promise is carried through the entire Old Testament. And we get to the story of Abraham, which is a few hundred years later, and God's like, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abraham's like, what? I don't have any kids, and I'm 75 years old. God's like, don't worry about it. It's going to happen. And uh, Abraham, after a long time of waiting, ends up having one kid, one boy, and then that guy, Isaac, has a bunch of other kids, and they have kids. They end up being this um, big nation called Israel. But Israel was in slavery in Egypt. After hundreds of years, they're in slavery in Egypt. And that's where we're going to pause for a second, because that's the beginning of the Exodus narrative. And the Exodus narrative is God coming to Egypt and freeing his people out of slavery and bringing them into the promised land. But first, I want to do a little bit of a summary of Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 11, because let's be honest, Paul can be a little bit confusing at times. I find him extremely confusing, and I think Galatians is up there as his most confusing book or letter that he wrote. So this is a little summary I made. Uh, this is a summary of verses 1 through 7. So Paul says, you were enslaved, but now you have been redeemed by the work of Jesus. Since you have been redeemed, you have been adopted as sons and heirs. Because you are heirs, God has send, sent the spirit, spirit of his son into our hearts. That's verses 1 through 7. Then verses one or 8 through 11. You used to not know God, and you were enslaved to non-gods, but now you are known by God. So why would you turn back to slavery? So that's just a brief summary of what we had read earlier. Now we're going to compare that to the Exodus story, which I also wrote out a summary for. So this is my summary of the Exodus event. All right, so the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. We already talked about that. Then they cry out to God for help. God hears their cry. He remembers his covenant with them, and God knew. Then God says that he will redeem them. That's key. The very first time the word redeemed is ever used in the Bible is to refer to God rescuing his people out of slavery. And Paul uses that same, pat, that same word to talk about what Jesus did for us back in Galatians. Then God sends Moses, and Moses and God, they just pretty much beat up on the Egyptian gods, and he rescues his people out of slavery and brings them out of Egypt. So, like the Israelites, Paul says that we are enslaved and we have been redeemed. And then, in the Exodus narrative, God says that Israel is now his son. What does Paul say? He says we've all been adopted and we are now sons of God. And then, in the Exodus narrative, the living God comes to dwell among them as they journey towards their full inheritance. What does Paul say? He says that the Spirit now lives within us, the Spirit of God. I mean, it's pretty obvious that Paul is using the Exodus as the backbone, as the, like, the infrastructure, the structure that he's telling the story of Jesus through. And then, in the Exodus narrative, the Israelites grumble, and they complain, um, and they want to return to bondage in Egypt. 
Just like Paul says at the end of our passage, he's like, why would you want to return to slavery? What is wrong with you? So hopefully you can see that Paul is certainly referencing the Exodus narrative throughout it. And really, it makes sense because that was a defining event in uh, the Jewish history and in the Jewish culture. You know, they celebrated Passover yearly and other celebrations that were centered around the idea of the Exodus. And they read these, these portions of scripture many times throughout the year. So whenever Paul uses the word redeem, slavery, cry, no, adoption, spirit of God, everyone immediately is like, oh, he's talking about the Exodus. So for example, if I'm up here and I'm talking and I, within like a paragraph, I sprinkle the words or the phrases, one ring to rule them all. And then I, the next sentence is, I you know, have like, my precious. And then, oh, Sam. And then, you shall not pass. I'm guessing most of you would probably realize, oh, wait, is he referencing Lord of the Rings? <laughs> right? So it's that except even more intense because they're even more immersed in the story of the Exodus than we are in Lord of the Rings. So every time Paul uses these words, he wants you to download the whole Exodus story into your brain and interpret everything he's saying in light of that. So what is Paul saying to us? Well, I think we can break it down into three different main topics. First, Paul is saying that you have been redeemed. Next, Paul is saying that you have been adopted. Then the third thing, so don't turn away from freedom. So you have been redeemed. Paul says that we have been redeemed from the elemental, elemental spiritual forces of the world. What does that mean? <laughs> and I'll be honest, this is super debated. And a lot of these things are, yeah, there's a lot of debate around it. So I'm going to try and keep it really simple. First, I'll sort of say what I think it means, and then I'll just give a really more brief summary view of it. So in Deuteronomy, which is the last book of the Torah, so there's five books, the first five books of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy is the last one. Moses is writing and speaking to them, and he's like, hey, you know what? You're not going to be able to follow the Torah, which are these laws and commands on how to love God and love our neighbor. He's like, you're not going to be able to do it. He's like, you need something more serious. You need like a heart surgery in order to be able to follow these things and truly love God and your neighbor. He's like, so what's going to happen is you're going to face the consequences of the Torah. They call them curses, which sounds really extreme to us, but these covenant curses. And part of the covenant curses is that they would, um, they would be enslaved to gods of wood and stone. What he means by that is that they're going to be under the rule of um, pagan nations, other non-Jewish nations, and that the gods of those nations, because they believed, in their culture, they believed that every nation has these gods that ruled them, and so they're thinking if they're enslaved to these other nations, that means the gods are ruling over them. So Moses is saying that's going to happen to you eventually. And a lot of people interpret it as the Torah is what Paul is saying we're enslaved to, but that's a little confusing because in other passages, Paul will be like, oh, the law, the Torah is actually good and it brings life. And then also, why would God give something to Israelites that then just enslaves them completely and Paul says is, is complete slavery? I mean, it doesn't really make any sense. So what I think is happening is Paul's talking about the consequences of the Torah, of not following the Torah, and the first century Jewish people believed that they were living in those consequences. They believed that because their forefathers hadn't been following God, they had chased after other idols and fallen into like human sacrifice and just really intense stuff, that now they are living under the consequences of not following the Torah. And so Paul is saying that you are freed from those spiritual dark forces that, that you are enslaved to. So let's just keep it really simple. I think Paul's referring to the sin, to sin and the power we give it. For example, the Jewish people believe there's a power behind many of the evil forces out there. 
So they would say there's power behind the forces of sex, money, greed, power, all those things that humans strive for and uh, use to hurt one another. Um, I was thinking about it, and it's almost sort of similar to our conversations around systemic injustices in our country, right? Like if we say there's systemic um, racism, there's like, we, we can observe it in our everyday life, but then we also recognize that there's, there's like this nebulous dark force out there that pervades the system that causes uh, racist things to occur. And I think that's sort of what Paul's talking about. He's like, there are these elemental spiritual forces, forces of darkness that have enslaved you, but you have been redeemed from them. You've re- been redeemed from those sins. Well, how have we been redeemed? Some people will go to the Greco-Roman first century context and they'll re- see how like, um, if you wanted to go redeem, meaning like free a slave, which slavery was like, is like almost half of the empire back then, you had to, uh, you would go barter and then you'd redeem them and people would be like, that's what happened with God. But the problem is, whenever you look at the story of God freeing his people from Egypt, he wasn't bartering and he wasn't paying for anything. God went in there and beat up the forces of evil and rescued his people out of slavery. <laughs> I think that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and death and defeated the forces of evil and has freed us just like God freed the Israelites. See, Jesus, um, on, the crucifix- on the cross, he allowed all of my sin, all of your sin, all of our pain, all of our shame, all the death in the world, he allowed it all to exhaust itself upon him. And then he was resurrected into victory. And what's interesting is the gospel writers um, they portray Jesus' uh, enthronement, meaning the moment he became king, not his, as his resurrection, but as his crucifixion. So when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he had a crown of thorns. He had a purple robe, which signified royalty. And he had a plaque above him that said, Jesus, King of the Jews. So for the early Christians, Jesus became king through his death on the cross which, if you think about it, is pretty wild and counterintuitive. I love this quote from Dorothy Sayers, who was a writer about 100 years ago, and she's talking about the crucifixion. Now, we may call that doctrine exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. That God should play the tyrant over man is a dismal story of unrelieved oppression. That man should play the tyrant over man is the usual dreary record of human futility. But that man should play the tyrant over God and find him a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. Let me just repeat that. That man should play the tyrant over God and find him a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. Any journalist hearing of it for the first time would recognize it as news. Those who did hear it for the first time actually called it news, and good news at that, though we are apt to forget that the word gospel ever meant anything so sensational. Yes, I recognize myself that I often forget how sensational and counterintuitive and just wild the gospel actually is. So you have been redeemed. Second thing, you have been adopted. We have been declared to be sons and daughters of the creator of the universe, So what does it mean to be adopted? I think primarily being adopted means being intimate with God. Paul says that the spirit cries out within us, Abba, Father. See, Abba 
was a term, it was an Aramaic term, which was like the local language, the language most people spoke, um, that meant father, but it was used only for inside the home. So it was a more intimate term for father. So you wouldn't use it out in public, you'd use a more um, maybe respectful or formal title for your father, but in the home, you called him Abba. And what's interesting is whenever you look at first century literature, it's never used before. The Jewish people called God Father, but they never used the term Abba. The one time it's used is by Jesus in the garden right before he's betrayed and crucified. So Jesus is in the garden and he says, Abba, Father, take this cup away from me, meaning take this mission, take this, what I'm about to do away from me, but not my will be done, but yours. See, Jesus, a lot of times people think that Jesus was like this divine robot, and he's like, yeah, I'm getting crucified, no big deal, it's all cool, I can handle it because I'm God. But no, Jesus was fully human. In fact, in Luke, um, it says that Jesus was in so much anguish that an angel came to strengthen him, and then he was still in even more anguish afterwards that he was sweating, and it looked like drops of blood coming off him meaning his sweat was so thick and large and drops were just pouring off him. Have you ever been so nervous or anxious that you've sweat a ton? Now imagine just being drenched in your own sweat. I imagine Jesus wanted to vomit. He probably felt sick to his stomach. And in that moment of, of anguish and of, of despair, he cried out, Abba, Father. And that's what Paul says we can also do. We can cry out, Abba, Father, in our moments of hardship. So we can call out to God in both the good times and the bad. In our joy, we can call out to God. In our anger, we can cry, Abba, Father. In our frustration, in our despair, in our loneliness, in our hopelessness, in our love, in our pain, in our disappointment. There's this guttural, primal cry that bubbles up out of us and we call, Abba, Father. In any situation, we know that we are adopted because no matter what the issue is, we can bring those feelings and those thoughts to God as our Abba Father. In verse 9, Paul even says that we are known by God. So that's another part of being, of being intimate with God. We are known by God. We can call God Abba Father, and we are known by God. In Greek, uh, the word is gnosko, and in Hebrew, it is yada. And this wor- these two words are experiential and intimate. It's not just like God, if, you, if you, someone asks God, like, hey, do you know who that guy Ben Hurst is? He's like, lists off, yeah, he's just, he's like, closes his eyes, and he's like, oh, let me go through my brain. Okay, oh yeah, okay, Ben Hurst, uh, he was born in 1991, he lives in Seattle, he's married to Lauren, has a kid named Malachi, and he just sort of lists all those things. No, no, it's it, it, no in an experiential way, meaning God has seen all that I am. He's seen all my pain, he's seen all my shame, he's seen all the good things about me, all the bad things about me, and he hasn't just seen me, he's been present with me in it. See, that word no, that word yada, is very experiential. It's intimate language. In fact, it's often used to refer um, to marital intimacy between man and woman in the Bible. Yada. See, Jesus experienced all that pain we can possibly imagine. Jesus was God made flesh. God the Son became human. And so he knows us because he is a God who is present in our pain. A God who knows experientially all of your struggles and all of your shame. But you might be thinking, I feel abandoned by God. It's not that I'm angry. I just feel like he's not even there. I feel like he's just abandoned me. But guess what? Jesus also experienced that. After crying out, Abba, Father, take this cup away from me, and being in so much anguish, he went through the pain of betrayal, through the pain of being mocked, publicly humiliated, tortured, and then crucified on a cross. And in his last moments, he cried out, My Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
See, Jesus can relate to you in all of the different things you've experienced. He has experienced abandonment by God the Father. He has experienced those times where it feels like God is far away and not at all knowing and present in the hardship. There's this quote from a, um, a book that's one of my favorite books of all time. It's called Silence by Shusako Endo. A little background to the book. There's this priest who uh, goes to Japan, and it's supposed to take place a few hundred years ago, and he's a missionary. And there's these Christians there who are being tortured at one point in the book. They're being tortured, and the authorities there say, hey, you've got to denounce Jesus in order for us to stop torturing these Christians. And the way they symbolize that is they have this like bronze engraved image of Jesus. They call it a fumian, this bronze engraved image of Jesus. And they want him to trample on it, like put his feet on it and wipe his foot across the face of Jesus. And the priest is understandably not wanting to do that, but he's like, if it was just me being tortured, I'd try to avoid that. But now it's other people being tortured and he has this weird ethical dilemma. And then this happens when he's brought before the engraving of Jesus. The priest raises his foot. In it, he feels a dull, heavy pain. This is no mere formality. He will now trample on what he has considered the most beautiful thing in his life, on what he has believed most pure, on what is filled with the ideals and the dreams of man, how his foot aches. And then the Christ in bronze speaks to the priest. Trample, trample. I more than anyone know of the pain in your foot. Trample. It was to be trampled on by men that I was born into this world. It was to share men's pain, that I carried my cross. I just want to repeat that one more time. It was to be trampled on by men that I was born into this world. It was to share men's pain that I carried my cross. There's another beautiful passage of scripture where we see this idea that God knows us. It's in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. The Israelites are in slavery. They haven't been freed yet. And this is what it says. During those, days, many, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It's so interesting to me that it says, and God knew. Not, and God felt bad for them, and God and all these things, just God knew. God experienced and knew the pain they were going through. And it caused him to act by coming and redeeming his people out of slavery. You see, we don't follow a God who is distant. We don't follow like a, a watchmaker who just sets the world in motion, then just stands back and is like, oh, sucks to be you over there. You know, that's not fun. <laughs> no, we follow a God who knows. We follow a God who yadas. So whatever you're going through today, you can cry out to Abba, Father, and you can know that God sees you, God remembers you, God hears you, and God knows and is present with you in whatever you're going through. And with all that that Paul has said, he's just astounded that they would then turn away from the freedom of being known. Paul's like, you used to serve these pagan deities, specifically referring to the Gentiles by He's talking about the following the calendar, the months and days and years, because they had different festivals to different gods on those days. He's like, you used to follow these pagan deities and you were enslaved to them. He's like, by accepting circumcision, you're pretty much returning to that lifestyle. Remember, the consequences of Torah not being followed, it wasn't that Torah was enslaving them, it was the consequences, the curse of, 
of not following Torah that the first century Jews believed they were living under. They believed that they're living under those consequences, which meant that they were enslaved to these gods. You see, freedom is hard. And the Galatians, they found themselves in this tough spot. And the way forward, it didn't look very obvious, nor did it look easy. So they started to turn back to what is familiar, to pre-conversion pagan practices. And Paul laments this. Paul believed that they were deserting the only one who truly, truly knew them. To Paul, this is as ridiculous as the Israelites wanting to return to Egypt, right? God had saved them out of slavery. They're out in the wilderness. They're heading to the promised land. And some of them start complaining and grumbling. And the way forward was hard. It wasn't easy. And some of them were like, you know what? Maybe we should just go back to Egypt. It was better there. There was pots of meat. Paul's like, you taking on circumcision and taking on the law is similar to that. He's astounded. You are known by the God of the universe. Why would you turn back? See, true freedom is found in being known. You were known and you have, you are known and you have been adopted. And what's amazing is God doesn't adopt based on like, hmm, let's see. Ben does this quite well, doesn't do this well, but he does, you know, he does this really, really well. So I'm going to, yeah, I, I'm going to adopt him. No, God has adopted you despite anything bad you have done. No matter what good things or bad things you have done, God has declared you to be a son and a daughter of God. God sees you in all your brokenness and he loves you. He sees you in your anger and he loves you. He sees you in your despair and he knows and he loves and he welcomes you into the arms of the Father because you have been adopted. You see, freedom isn't returning back to the known. But it's like that caged bird in the poem we start out with. I love the part, you know, the caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. See, freedom is moving forward into the unknown, moving forward into the fearful unknown, all the while trusting, hoping, and believing that the God of the universe hears you, he sees you, and he knows you. That, to me, is incredible and beautiful. So we're going to end with some uh, reflection questions. And um, just as a reminder, the prayer app is live. So if you would like somebody to pray for you, someone who can join you with any anger, with any joy, with any hope, with any frustration, with any despair, they can bring it to Abba Father and cry out to God alongside you. So here are some connection card questions, and we'll finish with a song as well. Um, what are your deepest longings? What are your deepest longings? Do you feel known by God? Do you feel like you can cry out, Abba, Father, in any circumstance? And do you ever try to get God to love you more by the things you do? Let's pray. Abba, Father, thank you that you know us. <laughs> thank you that you see us. Thank you that you hear us. And thank you that you love us. Pray for every single person here today, or not more present with us today, that they would know the love you have for them, that they would know the astounding lengths you went, lengths you went through to redeem them, that they would know that no matter what they have done, they are adopted into the family of God through you. I pray for anybody who's experiencing anger towards you or experiencing just despair in life or frustration, that they would feel comfortable to come to you as Abba Father, 
Holy Spirit, help them to cry out to you. Bring forth that primal, guttural cry. And God, I pray you would respond and that they would feel the love, that they would know the love you have for them. In your name we pray. Amen.